Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's October the 7th, 2020. The world is a complicated place. It needs to be, quote-unquote, decoded, unraveled, made sense of. Uh, The guest on my show today is one of my oldest writing friends, one of the most distinguished writers, I think, certainly about tech in the world, Poe Bronson. Uh, He is uh, the author of many books about uh, technology. He has a new book out, which he's co-authored, called Decoding uh, the World. Um, But I want to talk to Poe today about what he's been doing over the last few years. Poe has written many books about technology, and this new book, Decoding the World, um, is something uh, that he's written. He hasn't written anything for seven years. Poe, Decoding the World, is that the business of writers? Yeah, I think the question is whether you're... uh, like, this is the fundamental question for me. Sure, we're all decoding the world. And and we even argue in the book that uh, Albert Camus, when he was changing how people perceive what is inherently meaningful or not, arguing that life was not inherently meaningful, that meaning is what we ascribe to it as humans, that he was, in changing our thinking, changing the code. The code of life is fundamental to our society, and it's not just genetics. But here's the thing that I struggled with, which is to what extent, as as a writer, as a decoder, I was an observer versus a participant, and what that point of view brought to the page for the reader. And I began to feel with all that was going on in the world, and this was seven years ago, And I would walk around the San Francisco Writers Grotto talking in abstract terms, saying things that just confused my fellow writers. Like, the world doesn't want to hear from mere observers anymore. They want to hear from the people who are actually doing it. They want to hear, they want to be closer to the action that all these layers of media were somehow, and and fake news and, and, and chatter and comments, it was all making people feel distant from a source, and that I, as a writer, wanting to write about the issues of our day and where we were headed as a society, I felt a creative gap. I felt like uh, often something that writers always feel, which is I don't feel entitled to write about this from merely having studied it in books, having called people and talked to them, having visited startups, that there was a, a layer a dimension of the world that I didn't have access to because I was an observer. Now, don't get me wrong. You and I have known each other a long time. Like 
the observing is really powerful and it's still super powerful, but I, I craved the authenticity of having participated, have been part of it in order to write about it. And well, let's, uh, let, let's, let's look backwards briefly before yeah. we get to your career in biotechnology. You writ, you, you've written a number of really brilliant books. The nudist uh, on the late ship was the best book still in my mind about Silicon Valley. It came out way before my books. Uh, what Should I Do With My Life was a, a national bestseller. I think it was the number one book on the New York Times. How would you summarize your career as a traditional writer? What ties these books together? Because Top Dog is about behavior. Why Do I Love These People is a, is a kind of humanist take on the world. Uh, you write about tech, but you also write about people. What, what, what are the dots that connect all these different books? So what... The through line here, first of all, a through line doesn't have to exist. The through line is they were all written by me. Uh, I, yeah, they do exist. Yeah, so that's, that's obvious. But and a, but a through line doesn't have to exist. But what it, what it does exist, because I'm not trying to make sense of my career. I'm trying to pursue my, my, my art creatively. That said, the through line was fundamentally... What are the issues that the people of our generation are dealing with? And as I wrote about Silicon Valley, I didn't focus on the business. I didn't focus on the technology itself. I focused on the people. And I focused on these all these young people coming to Silicon Valley and how are they experiencing life and what are they going through as they are sort of uh, sucked up by these startups, chewed up and spit out. And... I wanted to write about that from a perspective that was informed by Joan Didion slouching towards Bethlehem, informed by, uh, you know, the Joads crossing from Oklahoma to California, the, this from the jungle. It was a story of uh, this human desire for a better world and then what they actually found. And people read it as a X-ray of Silicon Valley. And, and it was because if you tell the story of the people, well, it becomes that. But the, it was this humanist approach. And as I got to what should I do with my life, I think that a lot of people in our society are been asking themselves that question. Our whole generation has been asking, what should we be doing with our time here on Earth? As we moved into why do I love these people, it was simply people asking a fundamental question, which is, does family matter? And how do I create a family? Um, in Top Dog or in, in our book, Nurture Shock. Nurture Shock, which was for several years, the number one book that for parenting or child development, it was how do our young baby humans grow up and how do they become who they become and what role do we have in that? And in Top Dog, it was uh, diagnosing this understanding of ambition and goal orientation in a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and how do we manage that? So we've just been asking really fundamental questions. In Decoding the World, it is a book that will take you well, through. Uh, let's, let's, let's not get to Decoding the World sure. yet. Let, okay. let me uh, reverse one of the titles of your book, which I'm sure this is a... This is a game that many people have done with you over the years. What have you been doing with your life, Poe, over the last seven years? Because it's not as if you've been sitting in a room trying to write a book. 
yeah. in many ways reinvented yourself. You have as uh, um, uh, to, to uh, challenge the great Fitzgerald quote, you have a true second life. Yeah, uh, great, great frame for that question, man. So I was struggling with this sense that um, the world was changing faster than we can understand it. And I was feeling a kind of a call back to Silicon Valley. Even though I'd been here and was around it, I wasn't writing about it per se. And I think that that was rooted in something, you know, you've written about, you've echoed, you've underscored for me for a couple decades now, which is we're creating a whole bunch of stupid startups that are boring and aren't doing any good for the world and are arguably invading our privacy, destroying relationships and doing a whole lot of not very good for the world. And I was feeling a call because I felt like while that was the large story going on, I was seeing startups using biology as a programming code to do some really cool and important things. And I was feeling a call that these people would need help explaining themselves, that the world was at risk of rejecting them, at the world of not investing in them, and the world of not at risk of not understanding them. And as I was attracted to them and wanted to write about them, that's where I felt like, you know, just going by and visiting their lab and talking about it, like wasn't enough. And I decided I need to be involved. And so with a former uh, Wired contributing editor who was at Wired just sort of in the decade after myself named Josh McHugh, uh, I joined his company, which was called Attention Span Media. And we created a futurist group and we brought in Dr. Patrick House from New Yorker. We brought in uh, Ethan Waters, a sociologist. We brought in some physicians and we started to do reporting on predictions around the future, very serious reports on the future of medicine, the future of food, the future of sports and fitness and health. And off of that, I was consulting CEOs of a lot of major companies and, and sometimes CMOs or head, head of innovations around what the future entailed. And I was kind of a bridge between these strategic corporations and a lot of new tiny startups that were doing interesting things. And I was feeling now more involved, but I wasn't really totally satisfied because to be honest, those strategic corporations were not pursuing these innovations at the pace at which I thought they ought to be pursued. And the critical moment happened this is going to sound strange, but when we were working on a project for the, on the future of medicine, this is four or five years ago, uh, I was flying around the country and I was interviewing top people. I was asking them 20 questions to make predictions about the future. And this is really out there stuff, stuff 20 years, 50 years out, 10 years out. And nobody really had answers and almost everybody dissembled and tried to answer yes, but, or no, but, and take two sides of an argument. Nobody answered these questions for us. One day, 
I got a text message from a contributor named Chris Cowart. He said, I've got to go to Indie Bio, and but my train is late. Could you race across South of Market and go interview Arvind Gupta for me? And I had been a fan of Indie Bio. They were doing crazy stuff. They had flown a drone using a dragonfly neuron brain. They were making meat without the cow. They had done wild sci-fi stuff. And I didn't know Arvin, but I thought of him as kind of a Ken Kesey, a leading a movement of these scientist kids doing this wild stuff. I was desperate. I was like, yeah, I'm racing out the door. I'm going across South the market right now. I showed up at Indie Bio. And it's and it was, it's a little intimidating place. I went downstairs to the basement. So, J- J- Poe, was it is Indie Bio a um, is it a, a traditional venture invest accelerator for new biotech companies? I know now it's part of the the Mayfield Fund, right? No, it's not part of Mayfield. It's part of SOSV Ventures, okay, uh, which is a global firm running accelerators around the world. And uh, yes, it is. It's the only venture capital firm with its own dedicated science labs or its own dedicated hardware labs in China. Um, that said, it doesn't feel like it. It's a it's like punk compared to classical biotech's big band music. Right. And uh, and and I gotta say, it it felt like with what they were doing, it felt like they were, you know, literally like stolen the tools of capitalism or using them to fight capitalism with better capitalism. Like one of their startups that got a lot of attention, it wanted to stop people from poaching rhinos. So they were like, we're gonna flood the market with rhino horns made without the rhino. Genetically identical rhino horns made of rhino keratin. And we're just going to flood the market and then the, no one will know what's a fake rhino horn, meaning it's real, just never attached to a rhino versus an actual rhino horn. And it was like, is this art? Is this a co- really a company? So, Poe, just to cut a long and very interesting story short, you jumped ship. You went from being an analyst journalist to joining IndieBio itself. And now you're in charge at IndieBio. And now I'm in charge at IndieBio. Yeah. Yeah. Um and it, it confuses people a little bit why I'm here. I'll be super blunt. I'm here for the right reason, which is that I love it. I love it and I'm totally committed. And it's not like the great things in life go beyond some sort of rational through line. They, they go because you're totally in. Do you think from their point of view, I mean, obviously, you're not a kind of typical biotech, Stanford, MBA type, you know, PhD type. Do you think coming in as a writer, of being in the business of decoding the world in a textual analytical sense, do you think that helped you or bring some value? It must do from biotech, uh, from, from indie bio's point of view. The first thing they noticed was that when our startup, when I was working with our startups, they were able to raise money much easier. I was changing how they communicated to investors and to the world. And 
bang, a bunch of them were raising money that that couldn't raise money before, and they saw value in this. But I will say, Arvind Gupta, the founder of IndieBio, he started IndieBio from an unusual background, true, too. He had been a designer for IDEO in China, and he had studied genetic engineering as an undergrad long ago. But he wasn't actively involved in biotech in any way when he created this place. And that it was, it took unusual vision and unusual capacities to do daring things that got attention to build this place. And Poe, po, what, what have you learned at Indie Bio that you couldn't have learned as a writer in terms of decoding the world? Are we at a point and we're going to have another show where we have Arvin on the show to talk specifically about the new book. But are we at a point, do you think, in this early part of the 21st century that it's not enough to be a writer, that you have to be scientifically literate, you have to be associated with a network like IndieBio to really make sense of the world, to actively, aggressively, smartly decode it? Not at all. That was what I needed, to be clear. But... Also to say, I mean, even beyond writers, like we build companies, we don't just do science projects. So our companies need regular people. They need accountants. They need PR people. They need marketing people. They need computer people to do their websites and do their databases and their algorithms. They're small, now getting bigger companies that need a wide variety of people. And we're adamant that the future is everyone's to create. Um, for me, I wanted to play a role in the act of actually getting these truly baby companies. I'm talking about like two scientists right out of graduate school who are like a baby horse being born and don't have any idea what's going on in the real world and they need to be trained really fast. That's different than participating in the larger movement and end to understand it. The only thing I would say is that it's invaluable, say, for anyone who is a writer or a critique of this, these technologies is to understand really basic things. Really basic things such as your genome does not program or foretell or determine your fate and your destiny. Your genome is just a library of proteins that the body can make. The environment controls what genes are actually expressed and what proteins are actually made. Nature is nurture. This is the most fundamental thing that we've been mischaracterizing the genome itself since uh, the days of Darwin is based on the fact that we could only study the genome through rare diseases and rare diseases, which is like said of 1% of the population steers you in that direction. But for almost everybody, the environment is the ultimate gene editor and nature is the greatest bioterrorist. And if we can begin to understand that, we can then write about it effectively. So biotech doesn't undermine human agency. If anything, it it, uh, it empowers human agency. It empowers human agency. And I'm not just talking about in the era of CRISPR, now that we can control biotech. 
I'm literally talking about all time, all the time, that your environment alters gene expression. Drinking a glass of milk alters which genes are expressed. Eating vegetables, when you eat vegetables, proteins are like machines in a machine shop, but you to turn them on and off, you need these small RNAs, little snippets of code. 5% of the small RNAs in our body that are turning off genes come from the plants we ate in the last three days. So this idea that we are constantly interacting with our environment and it's constantly thermodynamically changing who we are. And we, it, this determinist view of genetics that has been prevalent in our society arguably is something that we have been trying to free ourselves from for 170 years, 160 years. Most philosophers since the day of Darwin, from Freud to Gladwell, have taught us that we are secretly hidden by other strings, that it's not all foretold by the genome, that there are these other hidden factors. And you look at the entire world of philosophy for the last 150 years. They're basically trying to struggle against this concept that the genome is deterministic when it was never deterministic after all. Only in rare cases does it have any deterministic value. Well, I can't tell you, uh, Poe, how great it is to, to have you back on the show. Uh, you're back in the book world, at least with one foot. Your new book, Decoding the World, which you co-authored with your, your former colleague, um, uh, at Indie Bio, Arvind Gupta. We're going to have Arvind and you on the show in the next week or two, talking specifically about the book. But it's great to have you back in the book world. And uh, it's also very exciting that you're combining these two careers. You are south of market. I'm in Berkeley. We're separated by the Bay Bridge. Uh, in addition to your new book, what else should people be reading in these very, very strange times? So I really like James Nestor's new book, Breath, um, I, which is on the bestseller list. So a lot of people have heard of it. It is about the science of breath. And, you know, it's somehow very empowering in these disempowering times because it kind of hints at a better self through just breathing. Another book I really like is called, it's by Mark... Modownik uh, called Stuff Matters. And it's a really elegant book about materials. And it just takes 10 materials from ordinary life. And it kind of tells you the whole history of that material. And you, it's a great kind of history, soft science, economic thinking person's book that um, makes you look afresh at ordinary materials around you every day. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. 
See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.